This is the evidence of what the unseen God can do when he indwells a person. He moves people who are perfectly comfortable here out of their comfort zone. They feel compelled to take the gospel, to spread the wealth, even to the remotest places on earth. So thank you so much for doing that. These are good people, but they're flawed people. Did you know that? I mean, that's, that's, that's all God has to work with, flawed people. You know what? We have seen this, I think, quite graphically in this book we've been going through, Judges. Every one of the judges of Israel, though mightily used of God, is imperfect, flawed, even sinful. And yet sovereign God gets the job done. We've seen this repeated pattern in the book of Judges. There is rebellion on Israel's part again and again and again. And then you see the gracious intervention of all God, uh, Almighty God to restore Israel in spite of her sin. And so the last time we were together, we saw that Israel, because of her sin, came to be threatened by a group of people called the Ammonites. The Ammonites terrified Israel. They gathered together for the sole purpose of exterminating Israel. Israel had no leader, but God raised one up. His name was Jephthah. That's what he did because he's gracious and good. And God empowered Jephthah to such an extent that he won a marvelous victory over this very fearsome group, the Ammonites. Now you would think, therefore, everybody rejoiced over it, celebrated it. But you may be surprised to see, as I was, that simply was not the case. It's in Judges chapter 12, verse 1, that we see this very surprising reaction. Then the men of Ephraim, we've heard of them before. They're one of the tribes of Israel. So the men of Ephraim, they were summoned. They orchestrated this. They got together. They crossed to Zaphon. Zaphon is a place, if you're interested, just about two miles east of the Jordan River. So that would be in modern-day Jordan. And they said to Jephthah, remember, he was the deliverer whom God raised up and gave empowerment so as to win victory. They said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon? Here it is, without calling us. Yeah, they felt left out. Why did you do this without calling us to go with you? We're gonna burn your house down on you. Good night. At a time when there ought to have been celebration amongst the brethren, there was not, and I think it's attributable to jealousy and selfish ambition on the part of the Ephraimites. They felt left out of the battle, and they didn't want to be left out of the glory, which was subsequent to it. We want some medals, too, is what they said. Their motive was not pure. And this jealousy thing, it's quite a poison. It could do much damage. In fact, you can read this in James about it. James chapter 3, verse 16. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, the text says, there's disorder and every evil thing. So that's what was happening in Israel. They accused Jephthah of winning this victory and leaving them out. And so, in the next few verses, Jephthah responds and explains to them, that's not true. I and my people were, with great strife, assaulted by the Ammonites. I called you, is what he says to the Ephraimites. 
and uh, you did not deliver me from their hand, and therefore Jephthah says, I was forced to go with others in order to face an unknown fate, in order to deal with the Ammonites, and it was the Lord who gave them into our hand, and so he says to them, you are factually incorrect, we did call upon you, and you did not want to participate, and now you're upset because you want to share in the glory, but you were unwilling to get in the fight. In essence, Jephthah is saying, you know what? You're more inclined to fight against us, your brethren, than you were to fight against our common enemies. And I thought, oh my goodness, welcome to the modern day American church. Because we're functioning as a peacetime army, we're not joining the battle. We've identified one another as each other's foes. We have nothing else to do. And we're distracted from the real enemy, if you will. The enemy is the darkness outside there and unregenerated people who are without hope apart from the gospel. But because we're not really about the king's business, we have nothing else to do but turn one on one another. I spent a whole bunch of years in the military and we were horrible, except when we were at war. It was just terrible. When we weren't at war, we didn't know what to do. So we would waste our time, we would take on foolish habits, and we would turn against one another. Give us an enemy who we could be directed against. And so the Ephraimites found it easier to attack their own brethren than to attack the enemies of them all. Now, you may remember that this group of Israelites, the Ephraimites, seemed to be showing a pattern of jealousy and selfish ambition. They just couldn't tolerate the fact that good things were happening without them. I admit that's a threatening thing, but we have to get over it. They couldn't deal with it. Good things are happening without us, and this seems to be a pattern. If you recall way back in Judges chapter 8, there was another judge whom God raised up, Gideon, and Gideon had a superb victory over another challenging group of people called the Midianites. And even then in chapter 8, the Ephraimites said the same thing. Oh, Gideon, they came after him. What is this thing you've done to us? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. And Gideon's response was so good. He said, my goodness, what you have done far surpasses any contribution I have made. And the text says their anger subsided. What a diplomatic response on Gideon's part. And now we see a, a, a significantly different response to the same people group by Jephthah. And so here it is in Judges 12, verse 4. Here's what he did. Here's what it says. Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead, that's where he's from. He's a Gileadite. It's an area east of the Jordan. He gathered all those men to fight. Wow. Against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead had defeated them because they said, you are, here's what they said, you are fugitives. That's an insult. The uh, Ephraimites said to the Gileadites, you're fugitives. Uh, the Hebrew word is renegades. It was an insult. And so because of this, um, they turned against the uh, Ephraimites and they defeated them, as you will, you will see. So this is an entirely different response than Gideon gave them. Who's correct? Gideon's response was gentle and diplomatic. Jephthah's was quite aggressive and he orchestrated opposition to the Ephraimites and so on. Which is the right response? Well, um, 
you could, uh, I like WWJD, it's really good. What would Jesus do? Make sure you don't say, what would Gideon do? Or what would Jephthah do? Or what would anyone else do? Because what mere man does is very much a function of their personality and the situation and the circumstances. So we want to be careful not to make heroes out of mere man or woman. Oh, oh, Jesus is our hero. We, have, we follow his example and not that of others. Your answer to the question, whose response is right, is very much a function of your own personality. Sometimes it's very fitting to respond to the insult of the Ephraimites, frankly, quite assertively. Put an end to it. Don't let them get away with it. And at other times, a more gentle, patient, and diplomatic response is called for. You just have to operate according to God's leading. So that's what happened. So verse 5 tells us the Gileadites, they captured the fords of the Jordan River so that when the Ephraimites were trying to cross over and kind of escape, uh, the Gileadites, Jephthah's men, wouldn't allow them to do that. In fact, it says this. This is interesting. In verse 6, look at this. It says, um, they would say to them, uh, Jephthah's men would say to the Ephraimites, say now, Shiboleth. Say, say that word, Shiboleth. But, 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 but he said, Siboleth. The Ephraimite would say, Siboleth. See, he couldn't pronounce the word correctly. And then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan, knowing he's an Ephraimite. He's denying his identity because he wants to escape this fate. And so we can test him out by this little um, pronunciation test. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites that couldn't pronounce the word rightly. Folks, that's the high price of jealousy and selfish ambition anywhere, including in a local church. Now, you may be interested in knowing what the meaning of shibboleth is. And the answer is we don't really know. It could mean something like a flowing stream or an ear of corn. So there you have it. You choose the one that makes most sense to you. Neither makes sense to me. You may be interested also in knowing that this word shibboleth, which is a Hebrew word, has entered into English vocabulary. So you can go to a normal dictionary and you'll find the word there. And the dictionary definition for it will suggest it's kind of a test of inclusion. So an inside group would have a certain test for an outsider so that if the outsider passed the test, whatever it may be, that outsider can become one of the insiders. Do you have tests like this for folks who want to join fellowship with you? Make sure your shibboleth is the right test. It seems to me the test of fellowship for a Christian should be that another one is also a devoted follower of Christ. Don't make a shibboleth agreement on all areas of theology. I was talking to one of our fine members earlier. This is what's disturbing between theological differences of opinion that are permissible in the family of God, we divide over them. And so we make our particular school of theology, unfortunately, a shibboleth. So you have Calvinistic churches over there and non-Calvinistic churches over here. That's a darn shame, it seems to me. I think we're missing the real enemy. It has nothing to do with that issue. It's the people out there we have to win for Christ. You wouldn't make a, uh, as your shibboleth race, would you? Do you know some so-called churches do that? 
If you're black, you don't pass the test of inclusion. You cannot come. Don't make as your shibboleth gender, age. I suppose there are some churches, in effect, they're so relevant, contemporary, and youthful that they have no places for people with this color hair like mine. Come on, folks. Be careful of the shibboleth. We have fellowship with everybody else who names the name of Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's the only test of inclusion. Well, the text says Jephthah judged Israel six years, and then he died. And then he was replaced by another judge named Ibzan. And what do we know about him? Just what it says, verse 9, he had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he fetched mates for them outside the family. That's all we know. And we're told he judged Israel for seven years. That's it. Now, if he had that many kids, he must have had a ton of women, so that's not a good deal. I mean, to pump out that many kids, one woman can't do it. So what the implication is, good night. This guy's not living right. So after he died, another guy took his place named Elon. The text says he was the judge for 10 years, and then he died. That's all we know about him. And then another judge named Abdon. You know, these are called minor judges because we don't know anything about them. What do they do? Abdon took over. What do we know about him? Verse 14, he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. You know what these uh, judges of Israel, they're living like their pagan neighbors, man. They are just having a, a whole harem of women and knocking out all these kids. Now, this particular guy said he had all these kids and grandkids who rode on 70 donkeys. Remember I told you a donkey was a symbol of wealth, status, and prestige. It's like them having 70 BMWs. That's essentially what was going on. So what we find out about this king is that he was sexually active with all kinds of partners, and he used his position to accumulate material wealth with which he spoiled his kids and grandkids. Yippee skippy, you did a great job. Thanks so much for your service. And we're told he judged Israel for eight years, and that's it. And then he died. So where do we go from here? Well, now we go to the last judge of Israel mentioned in this book, and you know of him. His name is Samson. And there's more written about Samson in the book of Judges than anybody else. And so let's begin taking a look at him in Judges, the next chapter. It's 13, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the sons of Israel, I hate this word, but there it is, again. Here's this repetitive pattern. Again, what? Did evil, see, in the sight of the Lord. The last verse in this book gives us its theme. It says, everyone then was doing what was right in his eyes. So in their eyes, Israel didn't think they were doing wrong, but it was evil in the sight of the Lord. As a result, look what God did. He gave them into the hands of the Philistines. They're mentioned a ton of times. The Philistines came from Greek islands, the Aegean Sea. Why they left their home area, who knows? They settled on the uh, western coast of Israel along the Mediterranean in around 1200 B.C. That's what happened. And this text says, look at this, that they were subjugating Israel. Look for this at this length of time. For 40 years, folks, that is a long time. Why was Israel oppressed for so long? Well, the text says because Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you remember this? We pointed out 
a long time ago. It's kind of a repetitive cycle in the book. Here's how it happens. Israel's at peace uh, until the judge who God provided them dies. And then Israel falls into sin and idolatry again. And then as a consequence, Israel is oppressed. And in response to that, at some point, Israel cries out to the Lord, kind of repents. And what does God do? He raises up another judge in order to deliver Israel once again. Now in the text here, one of these elements is noticeably absent. Can you think what it is? Nowhere in the text do we have one of these uh, ingredients in this particular case. And I'll tell you what it is. It's this one, Israel crying out to the Lord. For 40 years, we have no record of Israel doing that. Oh, God, we've sinned against you. We see no confession of sin. We see no repentance. We see no acknowledgement of their bondage due to their own sin. We see no attempt to petition God mercifully to intervene and to save them from their subjugation. In this case, at the hands of the Philistines. We have no record of that. And yet in earlier times, this is exactly what happened. When the sons, when the sons of Israel, look, cried to the Lord, what did God do? The Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel. But we don't see that here. We do not see Israel in this case crying out to the Lord. Why? It all had to do with the strategy of the Philistines. They did not militarily seek to conquer Israel. They sought in two ways to cause Israel to be so assimilated, Israel wouldn't even realize they're in trouble. And they did it in two ways. One was intermarriage. The Philistines found every single way to join Israeli men and women with Philistine men and women. Assimilation, in other words, being unequally yoked. And the second thing they did had to do with economics. The Philistines learned techniques of iron smelting. Therefore, they, could, they perfected metallurgy with which they could produce metal, agricultural implements, and even weapons. Israel didn't have iron, and so Israel became economically dependent on the Philistines for agricultural instruments and even weapons of war. So through intermarriage and trade, Israel came to be so assimilated, sadly at this time, Israel forgot that they turned their back on God and they in essence had given themselves over to Philistine values, culture, and ways. They lost sight of it. They didn't realize that they were in hot water because they got used to the hot water, so to speak. This is the most dangerous, sad thing. When a wayward Christian doesn't realize it, when a wayward Christian becomes comfortable with normative rebellion, that the wayward Christian doesn't even realize it's a problem. And therefore, as with Israel, the wayward Christian is not even crying out to God, oh God, grant me repentance. Please have mercy on my soul, a sinner. When a wayward Christian just gets hardened by sin so that they're not even convicted of it, oh my goodness, that's a dangerous spot to be. That's what happened. And yet, grace greater than all our sin, God still seeks to raise up a deliverer in the form of this guy named Samson, even though Israel didn't ask for any help. That's just how good God is. In, in, 
In other words, in spite of Israel, God anyway was raising up a deliverer for them. So you see this word, um, anyway? This is my favorite word in the English language. So I've told you this story, so bear with me if you've heard it. I was pastoring a church a long time ago uh, before you were born. No, that's not true, as I look to some of you. But anyway, a long time ago, nonetheless, it was in Chicago. It was a church, kind of a new church. We were doing well. And some of the church people were looking for a very simple way by which they could explain to visitors what kind of church we were. So I thought this was a good idea. Maybe it wasn't. I told them, well, tell them when they ask uh, that we are an anyway church. Anyway. I said, what do you mean? Tell them uh, we are a church made up of thoroughly imperfect people who are forgiven and loved by God anyway. Tell them that. And then I thought it's such a good idea. I approached one of the members, a guy who was an artist, and I asked him if he could draw uh, in a very nice way the word anyway that we would connect to the pulpit, to the lectern. And then there it was. And visitors would see the word anyway, and they'd ask one of us, what does it anyway mean? We could explain to them. Well, because he was an artist and got real creative with it, the word anyway, if you looked at it from the back of the room, looked like Amway. So my wonderful idea kind of, kind of exploded. But I love the word anyway. In spite of our sinful inclinations and proclivities, there's grace greater than all our sin. And Almighty God stands ready anyway to deliver us from our sin. As with Israel, so too with us. And so he prepares to send to them. They're not even asking. Yet he prepares nonetheless to send to them a deliverer named Samson. So here's what we read in verse 2 of the chapter. There was a certain man of Zorah. Zorah is a place about 14 miles west of Jerusalem. Uh, There was a man uh, of Zorah of the family of the Danites. So that means the tribe of Dan. His name was Manoah and his wife, what's her name? We don't know. Mrs. Manoah. Her name is not yet mentioned. Interesting. What we do know is that she was barren. Very difficult in any day for a lady, especially in that day. Pretty rough. This is what we're told about her. And so this is what happens next in the text, verse 3. Then an angel of the Lord. No, 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 no. The angel of the Lord, so you don't have to buy this, I think. The angel of the Lord is none other, in this case, than the Lord Jesus. You ever wonder what the Lord Jesus did before he came and was born as a babe? He, he pre-existed. He has no beginning nor any end. Did he just sit around waiting, waiting for Christmas <laughs> to, to, to come? Oh, no. You'll see many times in the Old Testament scriptures a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus. You know what he did? 
He left the glories of heaven in order to come here to pierce our space-time dimension to be actively engaged in our lives. I think this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. It can be called, it is called, a Christophany, a, an appearance of Christ before he was even born as a babe in Bethlehem. And so I think it's the Lord Jesus who appeared to the woman, and he said, to, isn't this interesting? He appeared to the woman, not to her husband. We know his name. We don't even know her name, but she's the starring character. The angel, the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate, appeared to, the, to her and, and said to her, he's not even speaking to her husband. He bypasses the husband, the angel does, goes right to the woman. He says, behold, now you're barren. You have borne at this point no children, but you shall conceive and, and you shall give birth to a, a son. So here's what the angel said. Remember, to the woman, and we don't even know her name, now therefore be careful, look what he says, not to drink wine or strong green, uh, drink or eat anything unclean. You know what's happening? This is called prenatal care. Why? What the woman is ingesting, any pregnant woman, affects the child. You know, God wants this child, who he is going to make a deliverer of Israel, to be only under the influence of him, his spirit, not anything else. And so he holds the child's mom, whose name we still don't know, to these particular considerations. You know what this strongly implies to me? Life in the womb Life in the womb. So, folks, let me say something that could be offensive to you. I was thinking about this the other day. I put the question to myself, under what circumstances would I vote for a candidate um, who doesn't uh, see the evil of abortion? I could come up with no circumstance. You have candidates today who won't even reject late-term term abortion. Now, folks, you vote for who you want, but uh, I'll make a Rothberg dogmatic statement. I cannot see how a mature Bible-believing Christian can vote for any uh, candidate, no matter how attractive and articulate and all the rest. I can't see how a good Bible-believing mature Christian can vote for any candidate who isn't strongly anti-abortion. I can't see it, and I'll tell you why. That's not a political statement. It's a biblical statement. Don't you see? You're going against the will and ways of Almighty God, the Creator. Even when the baby is in womb, sees its potential to such an extent that he exhorts the mom, eat and drink in a healthy way because there's life in your womb. Now, you can call it what you want, fetus, protoplasm, and all the rest. God calls it life. In this case... It's a potential deliverer of Israel who is enwombed. At what point does life begin? Does it begin at conception? No, way before. It begins in the eternal recesses of the mind and heart of God, long before biological conception. Good night. You know what some people have the nerve to say? Life is only when the baby, the fetus is viable, when the baby can survive on its own outside the womb. What kind of a crazy, that's not even physiologically correct, let alone biblically, theologically correct. Folks, don't cave in. 
I would rather vote for a flawed politician, imperfect like these judges of Israel, who maybe even by mistake, by accident, or just uh, sheer chance stumbled on the right positions, namely abortion. I would rather vote for that knucklehead than someone who is an avowed pro-abortionist unashamedly and who says, as I've heard in recent democratic debates, who've said, I'm not, I'm not saying anything that isn't publicly announced, um, those candidates have pretty much said they will have no one on their cabinet. They would never appoint anyone to the Supreme Court. Who isn't pro-choice? Look how they clean it up. Folks, that's the murder of life and womb. That's homicide. I can't see a, condition, a case where I would vote for a candidate that way. Now, you vote who you want to vote for, but I hope your political inclinations are shaped by your biblical value system. You say, oh, we got to separate church and state. Where does the Bible say that? You don't separate any aspect of living from informed biblical perspective. What we believe is not something we keep in here. Now the government and the world wants us to. Keep your Christianity to yourself within the confines of your Christian church. But Jesus says, Go and be salt and light. What are you talking about? We only gather here not to, not to pump each other up as an end in itself, but to be strengthened and informed, to go out there to be salt and light. And again, vote for who you want to, but I think your vote ought to be informed by the moral imperatives of Scripture. And this, to me, implies one of the moral imperatives of Scripture is that life in the womb is life created in the image of God. And with potential, we don't have a right to snuff out. What if it happened here? There goes the deliverer of Israel. Don't you see? Well, that's what it says. Now it goes on here in verse 5. Look at this. For behold, you'll conceive, you'll give birth to a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be called, look at this, a Nazarite, a Nazarite to God. From the womb, he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And now I know, in addition to good prenatal care, why God gave the uh, uh, directives he did to Manoah's unnamed wife, because the son was going to be uh, given over to a Nazarite vow from, this is very interesting, from the womb. Once again, can you see my point? The baby isn't even birthed yet. And God is already seeing its potential as one who shall begin to deliver Israel. A kid isn't even born yet, for crying out loud. What's a Nazarite vow? Well, don't confuse it with the word Nazarene. A Nazarene is someone who's from Nazareth in Galilee, in Israel. A Nazarite is someone, man or woman, you can read about this in Numbers 6, who voluntarily chooses, in most cases, for a limited period in their life to live by a higher degree of dedication and devotion to the Lord. And so there were, there were certain uh, parameters and um, indicators that this person was really being sold out to the Lord, this person voluntarily chose not to drink or even eat anything from the vine, no grape products. So as someone has said, you're at lunch, someone's sitting across the table from you, 
and they got their grape jelly on a piece of toast, and that reminds you, no, you made a vow to the Lord to be different. There's nothing inherently wrong with the grape jelly, but you submitted to this so as to remind you, I'm to be different unto the Lord. A second thing is you couldn't touch a dead body. Why not? If you touch a dead body, you defile yourself, and you may exclude yourself for a while from participation of worship of God in the temple or tabernacle. And the third thing is you couldn't cut your hair. Why is that? Well, it's not a fashion statement, but your long hair would be a nonverbal message to everyone. I'm set apart unto almighty God. That was called a Nazarite vow, the word meaning to dedicate. It was an extreme form of dedication. Samson was not the first. Paul took a Nazarite vow. John the Baptist and others in the Bible, you could read about it. What's different about Samson? His inclusion in the Nazarite vow, notice what it says, was from the womb. And this, by the sovereign will of Almighty God. That's why Manoah's unnamed wife had to live consistently also with the Nazarite vow because this is what her son was being called to. Very interesting. You see, while in womb, God was envisioning that the baby would be a deliverer of Israel. We would think a military general or somebody. No, no, no. God saw the deliverer of Israel to be a babe. Isn't that odd? Have you ever heard of anything like that? When there's a big issue and problem that God seeks to resolve, hmm, he sends a babe. How about the babe in Bethlehem? <laughs> would people have expected him to be the deliverer of anyone in the world who calls upon his name? Don't you love the hymn, Away in a Manger? No crib for a bed. The little baby Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head with the stars in the sky. They looked down where the baby Jesus lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. So you see here, as with Samson, that's kind of a foreshadowing of the babe born in Bethlehem, who surprisingly is the mighty savior of the world. And that's why you don't want to snuff out the life of a baby. You may not see its potential, but God does. Well, um, this is an example, once again, of grace greater than all our sin, as with Israel, so too with us. Even in spite of Israel, God's preparing to send a, a Savior. So here's what happened. The woman, we're told in verse 6 and on, comes and tells her husband about all this. She said, a man of God came to me. His appearance was like the appearance of an angel. It was awesome, she said. I didn't ask him where he came from. He didn't even tell me his name. But he said to me, you shall conceive, you shall give birth, don't drink wine, strong drink, etc., etc. The boy shall be a Nazarite from the womb. And then Manoah entreated the Lord. He prayed to him. He was a godly man. He said, oh, Lord, let this man of God whom you've sent come again so he can teach us what to do for the baby to be born. And God heard and listened, answered Manoah's legitimate request. And the angel of God came back. And the text says, to the woman. Again, directly, as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, wasn't with her. We still yet don't even know her name. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day, he's appeared to me. Manoah got up and he rushed. He followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, When your words came to pass, what shall be the boy, boy's mode of life and his vocation? Like any concerned father, he wants to know that. We all do. 
And the angel of the Lord said to him, let the woman pay attention to all that I said to her. He doesn't answer Manoah's question. He just reinforces what he told the woman. And it's repeated, let her not eat any or drink anything from the vine, etc., etc. So then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. See, that's what he wants to do. The angel said to him, though you detain me, I won't eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering and offer it to the Lord, that's good. For Manoah didn't know he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what's your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel answers this. Very interesting. The angel says, "Um, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? What's he saying? Is he bragging? No, 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 no. He's saying, I know you want to know my name because you want to kind of come to grips with who I am, but you can't. My name and what it represents is so wondrous, so incomprehensible. Though you can know some things about me, you cannot fully apprehend me. I'm much bigger than you. I'm the Lord. Now, you see this title? His name is wonderful. Does it remind you of something, a foreshadowing of the Messiah? In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called... Wonderful, you see? That's, what's ha- that's the Lord right there. So he doesn't reveal his name. And then here's what happens. Oh, no, I already showed you that. Verse 18. So, so here's what happens next. This is very, very interesting. Manoah takes the young goat and grain offering. He offers it on the rock to the Lord. And the, the angel performed wonders while Manoah and his still yet unnamed wife looked on. And it came about when the flame went up from the altar to heaven. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah, when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And the angel of the Lord didn't appear to them again. And Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And here's what Manoah did. Very interesting. Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die. That's what he says. We've seen God. You see, this is what happens. That's why a lot of people don't want to get close to the Almighty. Because when you get close to the Almighty, you get a clearer revelation of what you're made of. He's holy, you ain't. You don't like the picture, so let's keep God at arm's length. When you get close to the Lord, you get a clearer picture of your sin, he being sinless, and your guilt, he being guiltless. That's what's happening to Manoah. He's in the presence of the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, and now he's fearful. Oh, no, I've been found out. He sees right through me. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. We're surely going to die. That's what happens. And Manoah's unnamed wife says this to him. If... The Lord had desired to kill us. Look at this. He would not have accepted a burnt offering. Now look, we don't know her name. She's not getting the recognition maybe uh, she deserves and maybe she should get. She seems not to care. She's not claiming her rights. She doesn't put down her husband. She doesn't call him goofy, though he is. She calmly explains to him, reasons with him, what's true. How could it be that we would be at risk of being harmed by the Almighty when, in fact, the Almighty has accepted our burnt offering? And I say to you, though it is very possible for God to do us harm, he, be holy, he being holy, we being not holy, the assurance that his wrath 
will not befall us is that he's accepted the offering. What's the offering? No, no, who is the offering? It's the Lord Jesus. That's why, since the wrath of the Father has already been poured out on the Son, you and I, though we deserve the Father's wrath, will not receive it because Jesus took it all for us. How do I know that God will not kill me? Well, to repeat the words of Manoah's unnamed wife, he has accepted our offering. Therefore, we are not at risk anymore. Can you see what's happening? Now, i got to tell you something. This lady's a giant, and we don't even know her name. Could I encourage you, men and women, don't claim your rights. Just live up to your responsibilities. You may be mistreated because you're a woman. There may be prejudice against you, and you may be denied certain positions. I understand all that. I'm not saying it's legitimate. I'm not saying even that you should be silent about it. I'm just saying be very careful about caving into the culture of the day in which everyone is claiming their rights. And few are interested in living up to their responsibilities. Manoah's wife, we don't even know her name, is a giant. I guarantee you, Almighty God is not forgetting her. In fact, the angel of the Lord, the Lord bypassed her husband and ministered directly to her. Ladies, one thing that's true, that you, though you may be excluded from different privileged positions by society, you have equal access to the throne of grace, and your Father welcomes you with open arms. In spite of what you may be denied, you will not be denied communion with the Lord, access to Him, and you could even be greatly used even in the lives of men like Manoah. If you want to... Um, Spend your life demanding your rights? Go ahead. I get the impression Manoah's wife had better things to do. Well, anyway, that's what happens here. And so we're told in verse 24, the woman gave birth to a son. She named him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And, and Samson, you may be interested in knowing, you know what it means? Sunny, as pertaining to the sunshine. Oh, my goodness, their household must have been filled with rays of light when after years of barrenness, God kept his word. This lady conceives and births a son, but it won't be long-lived. We'll see in subsequent weeks that Samson, who got off to such a good start, sunny boy, ended up blind and in darkness because of his pursuit of sensuality, carnality, and the things of the world, especially women, We'll see about it. This is very interesting. What a contrast. Do you remember the judge called Jephthah, who was born of a prostitute? He was illegitimate, and his half-brothers wanted nothing to do with him, so they threw him out of the household, and he had to live apart from his family. He was ostracized. They held against him his very sordid beginnings. Your mom's a prostitute. Remember all that? God used Jephthah to do great things anyway. By contrast, you got Samson, who was born of the most Perfect conditions to loving, godly parents. Uh, God had a plan for him announced by an angel even before he was born. He's endowed with the Holy Spirit from an early age. Good night. He's getting off to a great start, and you'll see how he ended up. You know what this proves me? Uh, proves to me? Do your best, parents. 
in raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but no, it's no guarantee that they'll make the right choices. I know that the home influence is really key, but it's not determinative. It doesn't determine or guarantee that the boy or girl you're raising is going to walk in a godly direction. Why? Because of free will and free choice. Do the best you can, but don't beat yourself over the head if you have a wayward child or grandchild. You'll find imperfections in your own life if you insist on looking for it. But the most determinative factor in our lives are our free choices that we make. And even a child from the most disadvantaged background can, with God's help, make the right choices. Uh, Samson, born under ideal circumstances, did, make, did not make the right choices, uh, which reminds me of this. Samson and all the other judges, you know what, what they suggest? <sighs> we need a better Savior. The best of them in judges ain't so hot. Samson is not the one we're really looking for ultimately to save us and to deliver us. We need the perfect Savior. And that's the, only, the other point of the book of Judges. It points us to the perfect deliverer, the perfect Savior, so that what we ought to do is what is suggested in this song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Vote in elections, but please don't put your hope in any particular candidate as being your ultimate Savior. Go to a church with pastors you respect, but do not put your hope in pastors at your, as your ultimate Savior. On and on and on. We need a better deliverer than Samson and Jephthah, and we need more help than politicians, pastors, counselors, or anyone can offer. We need the Lord Jesus. In this day and age when we're increasingly disappointed by leaders, rulers, and authority figures, turn your eyes upon Jesus. I told my wife, if I pass before her, I would like someone to sing this at my funeral. So please hold her to it if, if she invites you to the funeral. I just love this song. It says it all. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look as best you could. Look full in his wonderful face. Why? You see, because the things of earth, they will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank God for Jephthah, for Samson, and for working through flawed people like them and us. But I need a perfect Savior to help me with my sins, flaws, and imperfections. I need a Savior who, unlike these judges, died. I need one who lives forever. I need a Savior who is the resurrection and the life. That's the Lord Jesus. So, let's sing this song together. Let's stand together, and then we'll be uh, dismissed. I love this one. Thank you for being willing to sing it, and it's not even my funeral yet. I, I'm very grateful to you uh, for doing this. Listen, the words are so very, very beautiful. This Jesus is our perfect deliverer and Savior. Let's sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
God bless you folks. See you next time.